Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. We have a very special show for you today. Welcome to the weekend edition. We have none other than Mitzi Purdue, all the way from Salisbury, Maryland. Welcome to the show. What a joy to be here. And I grew up in real estate, so ah, I'm coming home. Oh, great to have you here, Mitzi. We've got to know each other over the last couple of months, and my goodness, talk about kindred spirits. I'm just so thrilled that we get to spend this time together. And I'm fascinated by your story. I know our listeners are going to be fascinated by your story. The family name Purdue. First of all, the show is going to be airing on Sunday, February the 14th, Valentine's Day. Ah, so, oh, then we've got to talk about Frank because there's heavy duty romance there. Exactly. That's exactly where I was going. So the love of your life. I know he's gone a few years now. Tell us what Frank was like. Oh, well, he was my hero from beginning to end. And since we're around Valentine's Day, our courtship, I think, was about as romantic as it can get. Well, I guess everybody's story is romantic, but it sure feels that way to me because I was living in California. I was a rice farmer. And if you're wondering if you heard me right, yeah, rice, the stuff that a Japanese person might eat with chopsticks. I was a rice farmer. I was visiting in Washington, D.C. and got invited to a party. But I had to leave early because I, I had another place that I had to go. Frank Perdue attended the party, but he arrived late. We overlapped by 10 minutes. We started talking. And, you know, he was kind of interested with the idea that chicken and rice go together. <laughs> but our first five minutes, we're talking about how we were both divorced and how we were convinced that we would never consider the possibility of the notion of the concept of remarriage. And the reason why was because we'd never trust anybody again. Hmm. Ah, five minutes into the conversation, Frank looked down at me and he said, I believe I could trust you. And I looked up at him and I said, I believe I could trust you. And the next five minutes, we're talking about what our marriage would be like. It would be supportive and not competitive, would be there to rejoice for the good stuff and to support each other during the bad stuff. And then I had to leave. And I didn't get to talk with him for another 10 days, this being 1988, no emails, no Skype. And I was on a speaking tour. I was president of the oldest and largest farm women's organization at the time. Anyway, when I got back to California, Frank living in Maryland. We got back to Maryland, to California. There were all these nice pink while you were out slips saying that Frank had called. And then he called again. And he said, almost his first words, I've never been more serious in my life. And I said, Frank, I feel the same way. Well, I came back to see him. And when I had known him five hours, he gave me my engagement ring. And it wasn't just any old engagement ring. It was a priceless artifact an emerald probably meant for the Queen of Spain that was recovered from the treasure ship Atocha, 1622. Some engagement ring, right? Wow. <laughs> well, I went back to California to wind up my rice farming business. And when we were talking on the phone, the church that we belong to has a six weeks prenuptial counseling period. And he explained to me that he was running a company. These were somewhat difficult times, a little bit stormy, and he didn't have time for a normal... <laughs> engagement, but that he would like to be married as soon as the six weeks prenuptial counseling period was over. And so our third date was to see the minister who married us, Reverend Dresel. And shall I continue or am I monologuing too long? Wow. What a story. What a story. It does go keep, on, but I'll get to the end of it. Uh, yeah, keep going. We're 90%. I'm lying to you. 90% done. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the minister who married us, here we are in his rectory 
starting prenuptial counseling. And he says, oh, this is so wonderful. I'm so happy for you. Marriage is a glorious estate. How long have you known each other? And I said, do you mean in person? And he said, well, yes. And I said, I looked at my watch, uh, 36 hours. Wow. So when we married, we had known each other in person six weeks and three days. And it was a blissful marriage. But I mentioned that I thought my situation was super romantic because we didn't waste our time. When we began living together, I felt there was no adjustment period. I felt I'd named him all my life. And I shared his values so completely. And we had so many things that were just made us compatible. Like we were both extremely prompt. Uh, we were both very frugal. I think we were both very idealistic. It just worked. My goodness. Th that's such oh, a beautiful story. Oh, and so story. since people are listening to this on Valentine's Day, happy Valentine's. <laughs> that is so great. So, of course, Frank is known as the chairman of Purdue Farms, uh, one of the largest suppliers of poultry in the nation. And, uh, of course, he had a tremendous amount of wealth. You were born into wealth as well, a family name of Henderson. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, Frank Purdue used to joke with people that he married me for my money. <laughs> my father was the co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotels. Sheraton began in the 1930s, the height of the Great Depression. And this may be of interest to our listeners, because the 1930s, as you know from history books, a really rough time for real estate. If you owned a hotel, it was probably one-way fast ticket to bankruptcy. And everybody in their right mind, it seems, was running away from the hotel business, which means that it was very easy for my father to buy hotels but why could he make a success of hotels when nobody else could? I mean, he started with no hotels, ended with 400. What did he do to turn things around during the Great Depression? And I hope you want me to answer that question. I would love to hear the answer. Okay. As, as a little girl, and I was born in the 40s. In fact, I'm proud of my age. I was born in 1941, soon to be 80 years old. Yay. As a little girl, I found just a wonderful way to get my daddy's attention was to ask him about his business. And you know, so I was forever asking him, how did you do it? And there's not one thing that makes a business a success, but I'll tell you a story that he told me that you know it's engraved in my mind forever. I just mentioned that the hotels began at the height of the Great Depression. I think the first one might've been 1933. And that was a period when unemployment was 25%. If you lost your job at that point in time, you almost certainly weren't going to get another. It was the bread line. Well, father, when he'd take possession of a hotel, and almost always it was one that was on the edge of bankruptcy, when he'd take over a hotel, the first thing that he'd ever do would be he'd invite all the employees in the hotel, and there could easily be 400, 800 employees. And father knew that every one of them who's in the audience of the ballroom of the hotel, and he's about to address them, he knows that every one of them is just as demoralized as a person can be, because it's normal when a new owner takes over to get rid of some of the old employees that dad would, and to take care of the new owners, friends, relatives, you know, uncles, nephews, people who's worked with them before. Now, there's normally when there's a takeover of a hotel that's about to go bankrupt, there will be a change of employment for the people working there. Father knew that, and he also knew that they, the employees would probably not be listening to almost a word he said until he addressed that issue. And so the first words out of his mouth were in every case, I want every one of you 
to stay in your job, and I have a reason for this, is because I know that you know your job better than anybody else on the planet, and I'm here to give you the resources, the encouragement, the support to show the world just how good you are. And he said, you'll see, in just a few months, this hotel is going to be the most popular, the best served, the most financially stable in the whole city. And we, together as a team, we're going to show the world that things can turn around. Bad as they are, we're going to be a shining example that things can get better. I love that story. And it really brings me to where we are today, because there are so many businesses out there that are playing defense because maybe they're carrying too much debt, maybe their revenue has evaporated, whatever it may be. And it's created a tremendous opportunity for people to play offense, just like your father did in a time when everyone's playing defense. Hey, but that wasn't the end of his story because there's there's a part two. I mean, I hope you liked the part one because yeah, when he told me about it, I, I thought it was inspirational. But the part two, he said the next day, the employees of the hotel would see cavalcades of new faces. They were electricians, plumbers, decorators. They weren't employees of the hotel. They were people hired to refurbish the hotel. But he said what would be surprising to the employees is those people didn't go to the areas that the paying public would see, you know, like the lobbies, the ballrooms, whatever. No. They went to the areas that only the employees would see, like the employee dining rooms, employee lockers, showers, the corridors, the rickety old elevators. Father told me that he spent the first money on every hotel he ever took over on refurbishing the areas that the public wouldn't see. And I asked him, well, why would you do that? Wouldn't you make more money? Wouldn't it be a better investment? I mean, wouldn't you get your money back faster if you refurbished the areas that the paying public would see? And he said, no, that wouldn't have been nearly as good an investment in the hotel as refurbishing the areas where the employees spent their non-public time. And he said, the reason why is, and th this is an absolute favorite quote of mine from him. He said, people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. And he said that by spending the money on them first, he was communicating to them in a very tangible way, in more than just words that he believed in them, that they were important to him, that they were worth it. And the payoff for that was he was famous for the rest of his life for having employees who stayed with them for life. I mean, if you started with him, you've probably stayed with him for life. That is such a great story. I love that. It really speaks to walking the walk and not just walking the talk. And there's a part three to the story. I'm ready. Okay. And we're now kind of winding down of this particular story. But I also asked Father, why did you just sort of like give it away with your first words saying that everybody could keep their job? Wouldn't you want them kind of to prove to you or, or show you that they were good? And he said, uh-uh. He said, in his world, power, that is the ability to get people to do what you want, comes in three flavors. And number one is intimidation. He said he could have gotten people to do what he wanted by saying, shape up or you're fired. You know, put the fear of God in them. But he said, if you do that, that's intimidation, and people will do what you want, but they're going to do it grudgingly. They'll do the least that they can get by with. So in his world, intimidation, nope, just isn't effective. Number two, bribery. He could have stood up there in front of them that first day and say, you know, do a really outstanding job, and there's a bonus in it for you. There's a raise in it for you. 
But he said, you know, that's not effective either. It's better than intimidation. But with bribery, people work for the bribe rather than for the good of the whole enterprise. It sort of takes away from teamwork. He said, another problem with bribery is you don't stay bribed. You know, you've gotten that raise and then pretty soon it's, you know, what have you done for me lately? You, people don't stay bribed. So he was against bribery as a way of motivating people. So what does work? Answer? Their own internal motivation. No, inspiration. Well, okay. yes, I guess. Yeah. I, I, do you know what? I have to say internal motivation and inspiration are how about the same thing, but inspiration. And he said that he wanted people, he wanted like the maid who's making beds or the bartender who's tending bar. He doesn't want them to come to work slogging over making beds, although they're doing that, or pouring drinks. No, he wants them thinking, I'm part of a team. I'm part of a group that's going to build something that's going to inspire the rest of the city. And so inspiration is what would keep people excited to come to work. And he said that one of the great things about inspiration, he said, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. Wow, that's fantastic. And Father couldn't have known this because the research I'm about to describe is maybe a decade old, but it's from Gallup. Gallup is the polling organization. They've interviewed, questioned, actually millions of people in 93 different countries. And they're very interested in what makes people engaged, or actually not what makes people engaged, but if you're in the top quarter of people who are engaged with your company, what are the rewards? Well, how about they take 10 times less sick days than the people in the bottom? They're little mini ambassadors for your company. They will stay at least twice as long for your company. And father had them pretty much stay for life. And they're 37% more productive than the people in the bottom quarter. So I view my father as a source of timeless secrets of success. Do what it takes to create engaged employees who love working there. And you do that by giving them a better vision of themselves. That is so powerful. And, you know, in the service industry, like hospitality, it is a people business. You know, people approach it often with spreadsheets and say, okay, what are the numbers and really treat it in a very mercenary fashion. But if you do, it's not sustainable, I don't believe. Well, you went from no hotels to 400, and he was certainly in the, maybe the top three hotel chains. If we have time, I'll tell another secret of, of his success. It's much shorter. I'd love that. And again, this is in the subject of me, little girl, asking him, Daddy, how did you do it? And he told me something about negotiating that's benefited me for the rest of my life. And that is, he was a big believer in not being what he called a shark. A shark, if the shark is sitting across the negotiating table from you, wants well, the last penny that they can get, you know, the toughest stand that they can make. His attitude was the opposite. He said that he wanted to be a generous negotiator and that it wasn't a deal unless both sides came out ahead. And he said that he would very deliberately leave things on the table. Now, you would think that that's a losing strategy because you're never going to make as much money on any particular transaction. But he said, if you look in the bigger picture, he had the reputation of being a fair and generous negotiator. So imagine that, I'm going to give a concrete case, imagine that I know of because I, I got to watch it. There was the widow of one of the larger hotel chains. I think she was probably in her 80s by then, and she didn't want to run the hotel chain. So she went to her lawyers and said, help me sell it. The lawyers advised her, go to Henderson with the Sheraton chain. 
because he will treat you more generously and more fairly than anybody else who would offer to buy the chain. And so father said, the secret sauce for Sheraton's growth, or at least one of the secret sauces was, be known as somebody who's going to treat the widows and orphans well, or who's going to treat anybody well, because then you get first pick of the best offerings. You know, when we're working on various projects that we're doing ourselves, we can absolutely feel exactly what you're talking about. We're in discussions right now. One of our projects is a 240-unit new construction apartment complex. And one of the family offices we're talking to, I just have this spidey sense about me that, that I've got a shark across the table from us. Oh. And it just doesn't feel right. Now, I get people saying, you know, they're trying to do their due diligence and make sure that we're for real and all of that kind of stuff. But then there's a point where it crosses a line and you say, they're just putting the screws to you rather than looking to build something together. So those are tough decisions when you have to assess who are you negotiating with across the table? And I, I love what you said because that's resonating very strongly with me. Yeah, that's fabulous. So part of the Sheraton legacy, obviously today it's now became part of the Starwood Group and is now part of Marriott. How has the Sheraton legacy, and I don't mean just the, the bricks and mortar part of it, how has that been carried forward in your opinion? Oh, well, I'll speak specifically to my family because although Sheraton began in, I think, 1933, maybe it was 32, but in that period, the Henderson Estate Company actually began as a business that's always been run by a Henderson in 1840. It's still run by a Henderson. That's 181 years. So this is a family that's very, very, very much about legacy and that we're stewards. We're here to hand it on to the next generation in better condition than we got it. The identity of the family is tied up with philanthropy. I remember on the subject of philanthropy, I remember, again, little girl walking into my father's study on a Saturday, and there he is deep in books at his desk. And, you know, I interrupt him. And, Daddy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking at various charities that I'll be supporting. And I say, but why? You know, you could be out golfing or something. And he said, and this is the words that I remember the rest of my life. He said, and this is following Henderson tradition, because the Hendersons are about philanthropy. He told me, the greatest pleasure my money has ever given me is in giving it away. Cool? That is so great. Oh, but, but I bring up the subject of philanthropy because there's a family business theoretician. His name is Dennis Jaffe, whom I love to the moon. He's For 40 years, he's been studying what makes families high functioning. And he says, usually by the third generation, for a family that lasts, they've discovered the importance of philanthropy. Because philanthropy gets you, I mean, it's so easy just to think, oh, the wealth creators created wealth and we can go spend it. That's, I think, a recipe for disaster, just personally and for a family. Instead, if the family gets its identity, as I believe the Rockefellers or the DuPonts do, if the family gets its own, you know, the members have their identity as, you know, we're the ones who are supporting the environment or we're the ones who are supporting libraries or education or whatever it is, that's something that the family can coalesce around, yeah, you know, whether there's an operating business or not. One of the things I was talking to you before the interview here about my good friend George Ross, and one of the things that George taught me, he's very, part of his life mission is philanthropy. And one of the things that he taught me that I've carried with me ever since is the notion that when you're giving, you're actually not just giving, you're actually making an investment. So he wants to see a connection between the act of giving and a return on that investment. 
So for example, if you go and you give to an organization like the Red Cross or the United Way, even though they do great work, it's too opaque. You can't see a connection between the act of giving and a result coming out the other side. So he said, I will never give to those organizations. On the other hand, he's gone out and he's, for example, bought an ambulance and donated an ambulance, or he created a neonatal critical care unit at a hospital in Long Island. So he said, okay, in the first two years, we saved 63 lives. It's very tangible, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that I've carried with me ever since, and, and I think is so important. And I know in the future, we're going to talk a little bit about some of your philanthropic work, and I'm very excited for that conversation because there is that direct connection, and I think it's so important. Well, I can't wait to share with our listeners, well, first of all, what I'm doing in anti-human trafficking, but I'd also like to share just some of the joy that people get out of doing it. Well, let, let's go there now then. Uh, because, Yay, because I want yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, let's go there now, because it's such an important topic, and you've got so much energy behind it, and I'm privileged to be able to help in even a very small way to help further that cause. So tell us how you got involved in it and some of the initiatives that you have underway, because they're, they're breathtaking, frankly. Uh -huh. Well, I got involved in combating human trafficking when on March 11th of 2019, we're about to have a two-year anniversary. At two o'clock, I heard a lecture in which the speaker showed pictures of little girls, 10, 11, 12, who it was a sting operation in which they were about to be rescued, but there were hidden cameras. And I saw the faces of these girls, you know, terrorized, depressed, and a little girl should be happy. And it just, I couldn't unsee. And then I learned that these little girls, they were being forced to have sex with strangers 10, 15, 20 times a night. You know, it was like a sexual conveyor belt where a man would come in, do his thing, leave, and the next one would be there. And I'm thinking, th th there's nothing more horrible than I can easily imagine. And then I learned that that their, their life expectancy was lower than seven years. They were going to die, if they weren't rescued, they were going to die of a drug overdose, suicide, disease, or they'd be murdered for their organs. And it does, does worse than that exist? And then I began studying some more and learning. There are 40, and this is United Nations figures, there are more than 40 million people who are in human slavery right now. And to put that in context, at the height of the, the horrible slave trade from a couple of hundred years ago, there were 15 million. We're at 40 million now. And so I was age 78 then, I decided I want to devote the rest of my life to doing something about this. And part of the motivation was, you know, you can't unsee it. Uh, there's a quote from Mother Teresa that I cherish, the good that we can do, we must do. And I thought, yeah, there's something that I could do. And I'm not capable of going on a rescue mission or, or helping psychologically restore somebody. But what I can do with the background that I have is I could help raise money and I could help raise awareness. And the idea would be that I would be about raising money for other anti-trafficking organizations and raising awareness, that's for everybody. And I had a pretty good niche for doing it. But now I've got a question for you. Sure. In television, this is known as the tease. Mm -hmm. I was in TV for eight years. <laughs> I could finish the story, 
or we could invite everybody to come back next week. I think we've got a very good reason to have people come back next week. <laughs> okay, because I would love to finish the story, but since this is the tease, I will tell you what you're going to hear. You're going to hear stories of murder, death threats, a 69-carat ruby that belonged to a Qing dynasty emperor from 300 years ago. You're going to hear about dinner plates that belonged to a Russian Tsar. It was Tsar Alexander II. You're going to find, oh, and let's throw me in an heiress. Let's weave this all together into how do we stop human trafficking? And there is a way and it's new and you're going to hear it here. Come see me next week. I love that. I love that. Mitzi, thank you so much. If folks want to learn a little bit more, if they want to get in touch, where can they connect with you, perhaps through your website or social media? Okay, through the website. And I would love to hear from you. In fact, next week, be sure to have a pen and paper handy so that you can write this down. But you can get hold of me if you go to winthisfight.org. And I'll tell you a little way to remember the name Win This Fight. The initials are WTF win this fight. And that is no accident. And I'll tell you about that too. Uh, yeah, let's get into scandal net squeak too. So winthisfight.org, come sign up for my blog. You'll, I think you'll find it fascinating because you'll, you'll learn such things as why the traffickers do it. You'll learn why the Johns do it. I mean, why does a John want a 10-year-old girl? Because a 10-year-old girl inherently is just not sexy. She's not developed. Why do they do it? I'll get into all of that stuff next week. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Mitzi, thank you so much for the time today. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Mitzi at winthisfight.org. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Happy Valentine's Day. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow.